Hey everyone, our Scrivener promotion has been extended, which means you have until May 10th to get 20% off of the Scrivener writing app. I'm using Scrivener to write out Guardian and have been noticing a lot of neat organizational aspects for it. For one thing, it lets you automatically divide books up by chapter and scene so that they can be easily formatted into any number of mediums from PDF to EPUB to publishing manuscript. I also really like the corkboard, which lets me put up all the little notes I think up for characters and scenes, and is much more convenient than storing them at the end of the Word file, or on a separate one, or on a sticky note, or text files, or all the other stuff I've been doing before. If you're thinking of trying it for yourself, you can download a 30-day free trial, and it's 30 days of actual use, so if you only use it for, say, 3 days a week, you'll get 10 weeks of being able to use it, which is pretty cool, I think. It costs $40 for the Windows version, but with the code rationally, you can bump it down to 32. Hope you find it useful. Hello and welcome to Rationally Writing. I'm Dave Storeld. And I'm Alexander Wales. And this is episode 31, Action Scenes. So, the first thing I'm curious about is, are your favorite action scenes in books, or are they, do they come from visual novels, or cartoons, or movies, or, or something else? Probably movies. I'm one of those people who can like shut off my brain enough to indulge in eye candy, as long as it's done well. I mean, my, my taste for movies, and occasionally like anime, or cartoon shows, or whatever is long cuts mm-hmm. where they don't they do they do that quick choppy like every every half a second they cut to a different thing they do that to, to disguise like sloppy stunt work and right. stuff like that so i don't like that but if it's long cut if it's good choreography i, I don't know we, we should first say like there's a difference between fight scenes and action scenes in general yeah yeah I, i'd say that fight scenes are probably the most common type of action scene a car chase is a lot more rare, but mm-hmm. it's, it's much different type of action scenes. I think most of the same stuff holds true. But generally speaking, I go to novels for character and plot, and mm-hmm. I go to movies and to a lesser extent, uh, like television for the visual medium. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not always true. It depends on, you know, obviously I still watch dramas and stuff. But. Right. I tried to think back to what novels had the best action. And I kind of had trouble thinking of ones that really stood out. You know, I can think of I can think of novels that had decent action and that I enjoyed the action in them. But if I think of like action that really got me on the edge of my seat and my heart pumping and all that stuff, novels don't really jump to the forefront of my mind. There might be something that I'm forgetting, a few that I'm forgetting here and there. Yeah. Uh, but what I enjoy most from action scenes and novels comes from the what they bring to the table that, that most other mediums don't, which is the ability to see in the character's perspective and get their thoughts as they decide what actions to take in response to what actions the other person's taking, right? Yeah. So when you're watching an action scene in a movie or a live-action TV show, very rarely they'll get into what the person's thinking. It's just action-reaction, and it looks beautiful when done well, and it's very exciting. But it's a different kind of action than the kind that sometimes shows up in manga and anime and writing where there'll be that dramatic pause in the in or slowdown where you know the, the character's thoughts are being um, transmitted to the viewer and you're you're getting their reasoning and and why they're why they're making the next decision that they're making. Uh, this is where a lot of the whole talking is a free action, thinking is a free action trope comes in. Yeah. 
And, you know, and realistically in fights, most of the time people don't have the ability to make that kind of decision making, but it's, it's a different kind of excitement than the purely visual experience. Yeah. I think that you, you can do some of that in a purely visual medium. You just have to do it sort of one step removed, right? You focus your camera on like someone's hand and the blood dripping from it and they're like shaking slightly. You, you have to do little moments like that that are saying something about the mental state to the viewer. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to do those and most people don't bother. Yeah. Have you seen the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes? Yeah. 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 I wasn't a huge fan of those. I love, I love Robert Downey Jr. and I love Sherlock Holmes, but these two particular movies didn't really quite do it for me for a few reasons. But the... Most memorable part of the movies, I would say, was probably his method of, of fighting. Yeah. The mutant superpower <laughs> of being able to predict how a fight would go and what he, what he would do in response and then executing it all within, like, seconds. That was really cool. Like, that's the kind of rule of cool thing that I enjoyed from that kind of action scene where it's taking the immediacy of a well-choreographed fight scene that's unique to movies and taking also the planning out and the step-by-step thought process that comes more often in the written medium. Yeah. And I, I did like those scenes, the, the mm-hmm. like slow down analysis scenes. It's hard though. Cause I don't think that works for basically anything else. Yeah. Right? It's very hard to transplant that to a, to a different character in a different movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, the action scenes in any medium and any story has to kind of follow the, the abilities and, and strengths of the characters. Yeah. I think action scenes are probably a weakness of prose fiction. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking. Um, why, why write action scenes? So the important thing for action scenes for me is that they advance the plot somehow, which is which can kind of be said about any part of the story, right? But not always. Yeah. There's a lot of gratuitous scene setting in stories that sometimes is less plot focused. Any sex scenes in a lot of stories and books and things sometimes gets gets people irritated if it doesn't advance the plot in some way. Action scenes are the same way. There's a lot of books and stories out there that have action scenes that don't really advance the plot. And they're just kind of a spectacle, which can be fun, but... At their best, they tend to be trying to advance the plot in some way. You're not just showing off a cool new power or a new maneuver or something like that. You're also informing the the reader or the viewer about some aspect of the characters or something that's going to come up later in the plot. So it's also because the biggest moments of change usually come from... Not not moments of change necessarily, but there's a lot of potential for change in the story from action scenes. Right. The the action scene is usually what your your story or your like chapter or whatever is leading up to. Mm-hmm. You're sort of building as a matter of pacing, you're building up to the action scene that happens and that's sort of the crescendo. And yeah, that that is partly uh just general writing advice is you know, advance the plot or develop characters, or provide exposition. And if you're not doing those things, then it doesn't really need to be done. I think it's very important to keep in mind for action scenes in particular because they're a weakness of prose fiction, generally speaking. If you're trying to do this thing, which is relatively hard to do, you need to make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. And this is, I think, where a lot of a lot of action scenes that fall flat for me tend to be the kind that focus too much on, on the details without tying them into any anything meaningful. I read a Halo book, Fall of Reach, when I was young, and I enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah. It was really great. It's probably one of my favorite books based off video games I've ever read. And then I read The Flood, which was based on the actual game. Fall of Reach was a prequel to the first Halo game, and then The Flood was, was basically the, the story of the first Halo game. And... <laughs> They put some chapters in that were from a uh, alias perspective to kind of shake things up and not have everything just be exactly the same as people who who played the game. But a lot of the Master Chief scenes, 
which was like 70% of the book, was really just him shooting his way through aliens. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like it got boring so quickly. It was just very like literally just like walks into the room, reloads a shotgun, turns left, shoots two aliens. You know, he obviously puts the name of what kind of aliens they are and rolls to avoid an explosion, picks up a grenade, tosses it around the corner. And it just would go on for like paragraph after paragraph. And it's just like, OK, I get it. He's he's making his way through the room. Yeah. And part of the problem there is that in the video games, the fun is coming from from the decision making that you're doing there. Yeah. And, and what you're actually like the game itself is fun. Mm-hmm. What they talk about in the Halo games as a matter of design is they just wanted a fun 10 seconds of gameplay. And they just then they're like, OK, we're just going to repeat this fun 10 seconds of gameplay. And so long as that 10 seconds is fun, we can do it as many times as we want. And people won't get sick of it. Right. You can't do that with writing. Mm-hmm. You can't just repeat your fun 10 seconds of prose. Yeah, and because when you're playing a video game, you're, you're testing yourself, right? You're learning, to me anyway, like the, the, the value of playing challenging video games beyond just the fun of it, the sheer exhilaration, is learning new things and learning how to overcome challenges. Master Chief was not, while I was reading this book of him, learning anything. Like He wasn't like trying something, finding out it wasn't working out, trying something new. That would have been fun to read, I think. Like, yeah, that would have been exciting, interesting. It would have been something. Besides just repetitive, if Master Chief had been like, you know, the first time he encounters the Flood, trying some tactics that work against the Covenant and didn't work out, and he's like, All right, I need to, I need to do something new against them, and see him go through that process, that would have at least been engaging. But they didn't even do that, so it was very repetitive and, and unentertaining, unengaging. So yeah, that's it's a very, mm-hmm. very uneven series of books, the Halo yeah. books, because yeah. they they have different authors, and right. some of those authors put in more work than others, <laughs> which is the case with Star Wars books too, and and any kind of Serial by different authors. Yeah. So yeah, the blow by blow doesn't work out too well. You've you've got to do something. You've got to put something in to make the decisions and character choices come across to the reader as as something worth being engaged in. Not to say that there aren't people out there who do enjoy books full of pure action scenes, but where we we write rational fiction, generally speaking, we're, we're talking to the audience that might want more than that. Yeah, well, even then, I mean, I, I went to a talk by uh, Larry Correa, who probably now most famous for being part of the Sad Puppies Hugo thing, mm-hmm. but he, he did Monster Hunters International, which is kind of a, uh, how to put this nicely. It is very much that, like, full action, not huge amount of thinking mm-hmm. thing. And he was, he was basically saying the same thing, that, uh, you have to, you have to make sure that you're not just telling people what's happening if you're just giving a plain description of like a fight between two boxers there's not that much exciting about it right if it's just a what what jabs they're trading right or, right. or, or things like that partly i think you need to be impressionistic mm-hmm. in that you need to give your reader the impression of being in the scene right so mm-hmm. it's it's better to just summarize a part where logically something would repeat by just saying they traded a few blows and then backed off and yeah. they're breathing heavily or whatever, rather than doing the blow by blow. <laughs> There's a thing that I noticed a lot when I'm rewatching old episodes of Dragon Ball Z, that there's, there's just these, these times in Dragon Ball Z where they were just, there's this animation loop of them punching and kicking at each other and blocking. Yeah. <laughs> and then they break apart again. And it's just like, that didn't, like it doesn't accomplish anything. It pads the, the fight, but I guess it's kind of important just to show that this fight isn't happening in like sets of, decisive moments like i don't know like i've never seen a fight scene 
where those were taken out so I can judge, like, if I would enjoy it better. I know that now that I know... Like, if I'm just watching for the highlights, obviously I'm just going to skip ahead past those things. But there's a lot of redundancy in action scenes on the visual medium, and I think it works... It's a little more forgivable on the visual medium than it is in writing, and if it's at all possible to eliminate it in in writing, you should. I recently wrote a chapter where Blue challenges the civilian gym for a badge, and it was a chapter with a battle on an island following another chapter that had another battle on an island because he fought Misty second-in-command right before. And I was putting a lot of thought into how do I keep these two fights distinct? How do I make it so that they're not just the same the same kind of fight? So what I went to, what I thought about there was put it, setting objectives in in combat. Setting goals for the combat is really important for me. I want I don't want to go into a, a combat scene, an action scene and just have it be the good guy has to win. That's not fun for me or engaging, I think, for the reader, as engaging for the reader, um, especially if it's the kind of fight scene that doesn't necessarily have stakes. So these fights might have stakes because, you know, maybe Blue will lose. And people might think, oh, Blue's not going to lose this fight, or Blue's very very unlikely to lose this fight or something like that. So I don't want that to ever be the stake of whether he'll lose or not. I like having additional stakes to the fight beyond victory or defeat. So for the one where he was fighting Misty's second-in-command, the goal was to beat her without revealing that he has an electric-type Pokemon because he wanted to keep that as a surprise for Misty. And so she knew this. She she noticed that he had never used an electric Pokemon throughout the gym. So she used only flying water Pokemon, which electric Pokemon are four times super effective against in the games. Like, they've, they've got ex- extra advantages against them. And the flying water types are stronger against grass types than most water types are. So it's a it's kind of a, a double advantage on her side. So either he's going to only use grass types, and these flying water types are going to have an advantage against them, or he's going to finally bring out the electric type and beat me, but I'll have done my job and revealed his electric type for Misty so she'll know what he has. And I, th- I felt like that was added challenge to the fight that was exciting for me and hopefully made it more exciting for readers too. And then for Misty, I used the Indigo League fast-paced rules, which is the first time Blues had to had to do that. And the added strain on him physically is something that I focused on with that. Yeah, I think you have, if you're doing fantasy, I'm not sure, would you consider Origin of Species fantasy? Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of has to be. As much as the t- advanced technology is hand-waved, the Pokemon themselves are fantasy creatures. They've got what what is for all intents and purposes magic. I don't know. Like it's as fantasy as um It's it's one of those things that the term speculative fiction was coined for. Yeah, yeah. So so you don't have to worry about that too much. Um but I, I think for um speculative fiction you have this great benefit for action scenes and fight scenes in particular, as you have so many more ways to mix them up. Mm-hmm. Like for Pokemon there are every Pokemon has I guess not unique attacks, but every Pokemon that a trainer has will tend to be distinct. Yes. And so when you do a battle, you can sort of iterate through different fight scenes that are all part of the same action scene. Right. And then then even if you're doing blow by blow to some extent, which is sort of the nature of Pokemon as Mm -hmm. the game, right, is that you... You call out a command, they call out a command. And right. I, I've never actually played Pokemon, <laughs> but um, it, that's sort of the nature of it. But it because you're going through different Pokemon and different strategies and stuff, you sort of alleviate that. Right. It's much more difficult if you are in a totally mundane world and you have your protagonist and then there are some bad guys, right? Right. Because you need to change, you need to change your settings, you need to change tactics. A lot of movies, especially, will have different 
antagonists that have their their sort of gimmick mm-hmm. so that you can have a different kinds of choreography and challenges if someone's like using a bow staff or is a big hulking brute or something right there's got to be some some variation anime and manga does this a lot and we've talked about this before i think in our episode on magic systems mm-hmm. where even if you're doing something like bicycle racing right everyone will have their own specific like oh my my thing is cadence and my thing is i'm yeah 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 super powerful and meaty or high stamina uh, or something yeah and so you use that to make sure that every race is not just the same right because it'd it, it get boring after the first time mm-hmm. i was gonna say the second time but <laughs> it, it, it's not quite true so. right and if you're doing rematches right if there's ever a situation where someone has a rematch then the value of the rematch is kind of implicitly known to the, to the readers and viewers that it's it's building on the last fight they had it's not going to be a repeat of it like some someone's doing something different in response to what happened last time yeah and part, part of that's the power of foreshadowing right yeah. foreshadowing will make any fight better and if you do a rematch you've already foreshadowed most of it and you there's an implicit promise to the reader that the same thing isn't going to happen again yeah so there's there's an aspect of rational fiction that comes in when we talk about teaching something to the reader or doing things in in the in the story that is learnable it's not magic and it's not cheated right right there's a great example described in some of eliezer's writing on the on the topic of chess yeah so since action scenes can be more than just fight scenes, right? There can, an action scene could be a chess match based on, you know, the shot composition if you're doing a movie or what's at stake for the chess match and, and stuff like that. And the usual fiction thing to do is just have people just make these moves very, very either very quickly or very, you know, with lots of like shots of their face looking very thoughtful and not really communicating anything to the reader or the viewer other than, these people are very smart. They're doing this very smart thing, which is playing chess. Be impressed by how smart they are. And that's not super fun for me. You know, like I get it. It works as a good signaling effect, but I like learning things from, especially if it's a, a, an actual skill. Like if someone's using magic to summon creatures to fight each other with, like I'm not going to learn a whole lot that's applicable to my own life with that, but it's still fun learning about the, the magic system. But if it is something isn't as complex as a magic system and it is something in the real world, then I, I like to learn something about what they're doing, whether it's car racing or chess playing or taekwondo or something. Like Even if it's something as simple as the the advantages of superior reach in, in martial arts. Yeah. I want that to be communicated and demonstrated so I can learn something from it. And that's that's a good way, in my view, to make action scenes more rational, is just make sure you're com- if you're involving something that can be communicated, do your best to learn what that is, how that works, and then put something in to the action that makes that a learnable thing. Like even, even the very first Harry Potter book had just this one snippet of knowledge in the, in the, in the major chess scenes, in the Philosopher's Stone maze. You know, the whole thing happens in summary. It's just, you know, they're jumping around the board, capturing enemy pieces. It doesn't describe it blow by blow, blow which is good because that'd be super boring for most people who don't care about chess, especially kids. But at the end of the fight, Ron apparently realizes that the only way to win is for him to sacrifice himself and they can then win the, win the match without him. And the other two object and he tells them that's how chess works. You have to be willing to sacrifice pieces. That's the way the game works. And that was great because that was communicating something, even something extremely basic, you know, to nine and ten year olds reading the book for the first time. They at least learned something about chess. And it made the action scene of the chess scene not completely pointless because it also added a, a character moment for Ron. 
Yeah, there's a ton of stuff on like swordplay and martial arts mm-hmm. to be read. Like, I wouldn't say that if you're writing like a, a kung fu scene or, or whatever that you need to go and like take some lessons. That wouldn't hurt. Mm-hmm. But there's so much stuff that's freely available online. So much good commentary on actual practice on mm-hmm. stuff that are, there's not really a reason to stay in a sort of pop culture osmosis fantasy land with right. it. Right. So pacing and flow, I think, are the two hardest things about action scenes, right? Mm-hmm. Like not not being repetitive. Okay, that's that's great advice. It's very easy to put into practice, usually, mm-hmm. uh, unless you have one of those sort of hinks in your plot where wave after wave of men just get thrown at your protagonist. Yeah, where where the logical thing to happen would be that you repeat the same thing, mm-hmm. right? That's that's a plot problem. That's not really. That that is an action scene problem. It's an action scene problem that's caused by a plot problem. Right. Pacing and flow is about how the reader experiences the words that are coming to you. Mm-hmm. And it's very, well, I find it very difficult to do non-instinctually. I think that if I'm writing an action scene, I'll naturally go towards simpler vocabulary, mm-hmm. shorter sentences, and or shorter clauses. Uh, you can string short clauses together with a bunch of commas to give a sort of breathless right, feeling. Right. People will have, especially if they still vocalize while reading, um, they'll get that sort of breathless feeling from it. And then they're, they're reading faster and that, that's part of what gets heart rate up. It's one of, one of the ways that you manipulate how a reader is experiencing the text. But that's very, it's very difficult for me to sit down and look at an action scene and say, okay, this, this word is too long. Or this pace is too slow and now I'm going to improve it. Yeah. For pacing for me, what I try to make sure I do is like when I want to kick the pace up, I stay in the character's head more. I, it's less, I'm less a narrator describing what's happening. I'm more inside the character kind of relaying the, the, the narration himself. Like if it gets to an intense moment, it doesn't become Michael looked left, rose his gun up and fired and hit the person's leg. It would be something more like left, yes, there, leg, fire. And each word might just be its own sentence with like a, a period between each one to show how quick and reactionary it is. Yeah, I think going going hectic with descriptions is a good strategy generally. Right. You know, I think that if you are in a fight, it's much more disorganized and sort of frantic than if you're just literally describing what what's happening. Right. Yes. And so you remove some. You remove some description because that's usually that's usually your balance against action, right? Mm-hmm. So if he like looks left and then raises his gun and fires it, you you can compress that down to just the action of like raising his gun and firing, mm-hmm. and that's a more action-packed way of doing it, right? Because you're removing some of the description, and the more description that you remove, the more action you're packing in. Um, it sort of depends on what you're trying to do with your action scene, right? Because I've seen some people have some success with going clinical in their descriptions, which gives a very different tone, but can, I think, help a lot to deliver impact. Mm-hmm. This, like, dissociative thing that you can do with your descriptions. Right. But I don't know. I, I think that's the, the thing that pacing and flow are the things that you need to be the most aware of, but they're also the most difficult to do, especially if you're trying to deliberately put one word ahead of the other instead of just, like, hammering at your keyboard. Yeah. So I was thinking of asking what, what was a, a action scene that you found challenging to write or that you that you wrote that, that you felt like you, you did well? There was one in Glimwarden. I can't remember what chapter it is, but 
they are responding to this lantern going out, and so they have to defend against the Darklings. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of is trying to do it from the perspective of basically uh, an infantry member with no training who gets thrust into their first battle. And then people are dying left and right, and it's a confusing jumbled mess mm-hmm. that also it has to like get the reader's heart rate up, right? Because they don't know. You have to do a little bit of exposition because there's a lot of stuff that hasn't been seen before, mm-hmm. but that has to be sort of mixed in with this jumbled mess. And then you don't want people stopping while they're reading. Right. Right. Um, cause if you ever like stop, that's, I think one of the reasons why prose has a little more difficulty with action scenes is because the reader can just stop reading. Right. <laughs> and like, that's sort of a death knell for, for action scenes in movies or television. If, if someone just pauses and goes up and gets some popcorn and comes back. It must not have been a very engaging action scene for that to happen, right? Yeah. Well, and even if it were on the face of it, if, if they get distracted by something in the middle of, of of watching and then they just stop it, that kills all your momentum. Right. So that's, that's one of the things that I was trying really hard to make sure that it was sort of confusing and and jumbled and experienced in the way that you would experience this this new and wildly different stimulus Mm -hmm. and then at the same time not have anything that people would just stop at and like you you can't have people rereading sentences in in your action scene yeah this goes back to the the flow right you want to you want to make it as as easy and painless to to get through as possible yeah you can't have people stopping in the middle of your action scene to read, read a sentence, and you can't have them stopping to try to visualize things in their head. Yeah, that's that's another good point. That like if you, you you know if some if you're in the middle of a, of a giant war, a giant battle, and some you know enemy champion jumps onto the onto the battlefield with like a glowing red sword and you know some black armor with spikes up and so like you, you know you can take a moment to describe that. That's fine, but it should be it should be just a moment. It shouldn't be. You know, unless this is, then this was a reason for him just to be standing there and your character to be looking him over in, in great detail. Yeah. You don't want it to break the flow of the, of the action scene too much. Yeah. Well, for description, especially if you're describing things in like three dimensional space, that's really don't try not to describe the things that are difficult for human brains to comprehend. Like if you're trying to describe the exact positioning of like four different characters mm-hmm. as they're moving around on a battlefield. Like, if you want to say a diamond formation, that's great. That's easy for people to get. But if you want to, like, do an irregular trapezoid, the amount of effort that you need to put into describing that and the amount of visualization that the reader will have to have for that usually makes it not that worth it. There is a book I've got, Kung Fu High School, where the opening, like, prelude chapter thing is one of my least favorite because it that I've, of any book I've read because it, it is describing this fight scene sort of after the fact and the things that it's asking you to visualize are so kind of weird and awkward that like, it doesn't work as an action scene at all. Mm-hmm. I, I like the rest of the book, but the, the first one is just like he like kicks someone and then he's holding his head up so he doesn't get a concussion with his foot. And I'm just like, okay, but this is not, I can eventually get it, but by the time I've gotten it, I'm not I'm not thrilled with this action anymore. Yeah, having the the readers have trouble visualizing what's happening is is a problem. Having the the readers have trouble visualizing the setting can also be a problem. 
if it's in a place that positions are, aren't clear and things like that, then that, that's just extra burden that you're putting on the reader to understand what's happening. And it can make it easy for something to take them out of the story and, and it kind of surprise them. Like if enemy soldiers are hidden behind a hill on, on their left and they suddenly pop over the hill and you didn't do a good job of setting the battlefield for them. This just feels like this whole hill full of soldiers came out of nowhere. And why were these people, you know, having a blind spot on the left side in the first place and that kind of thing? Yeah. You're asking the reader to basically keep a bunch of information right, in their right. head. Especially if you're trying to set a complex battle scene, which I think is one is a fairly strong argument for not doing that. Mm-hmm. Just keep them small scale as best you can. Small scale and a little more simple. I mean, you kind of have to play your hand a little bit because you're going to describe it's the it's the foreshadowing Chekhov's gun thing mm-hmm. right if you describe this hill it better be like strategically or tactically important or something better happen with it because if it doesn't then it, you're just filling the reader's ram with garbage right. information there's lots of large-scale tactics and battles and things that happen in fantasy or science fiction with like spaceship battles there's lots of things that i've noticed that some do that work well when they summarize how troop movements are thought up and, and done versus using the commander's eye view of the of the battlefield tends to be a good way to do action at that level. Yeah. One of the things that you can do with multiple perspectives right, right. is that you can have a chapter with the guy who's like down on the ground and doesn't have a full picture of what's going on. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, sort of in the muck and blood. And then you can have a different chapter of some guy who is, you know, receiving reports from messengers and is experiencing the battle on a strategic level not a tactical one yeah and that's a great source of, of drama because to have to have the character in the muck like suddenly see the the flankers burst through on the left side and, and start running towards him and wondering what the hell's going on and then you jump to the overhead battle where the commander is freaking out about you know the sudden reinforcements that the enemy got or whatever yeah anything else you want to talk about for action scenes that aren't combat related i know we, we mentioned them briefly but um i don't know that i've ever written one i'm trying to think well, okay, chase scenes are are different. I, I've done a lot of those for, like, Dungeons & Dragons. I guess Shadows of the Limelight actually starts with a race. Mm-hmm. Mostly for, for races or, or chases, you just need to have a series of things that happen. Ideally, they're, they're logically connected to one another. You can't just have a race where people are going in a lap three times, right? <laughs> uh, and you can't really have a chase where it's just one crowded street that they have to get down and they get closer and closer and then they catch them. Because mm-hmm. that's not that's not compelling. It, it might be true to life, but that's one of the things with rational fiction is that I have seen on occasion some people will just say, oh, that well, that's not, that's something that happens in stories, but that's not something that happens in life. Right. I, I think you need to alter your story so that it still conforms to being a pleasant experience for readers. You can still do the things that just happen in real life, but you you summarize them instead then, right? It's, it's kind of like dialogue. It's a balance between what's realistic and what's pleasing to read. Right. And yeah, like a chase scene, you still have the same kind of goals. Like, you you know, there's a... You want to vary the setting as needed. You want to introduce obstacles, have the character get challenged by small obstacles, whether it's the person they, they're chasing, you know, dumping a <laughs> like a rack of boxes at the supermarket in their way, whatever it is. Like a chase scene is not isn't just a chase scene. You're not just one person running and another person running behind them. If it is, like you said, you just summarize it. It's obstacles in the way of getting to the other person. It's a battle of stamina, I guess, in whatever way that comes up. Like thinking up shortcuts and taking gambles that pay off or don't pay off. 
in terms of predicting where they're going to go and ways that you can cut them off and stuff like that. Yeah. Most action scenes of any kind, whether it's more violence-oriented or not, like you can make them more cerebral if you work at it. I tend to like action scenes that have that mental challenge associated with them, but you can implement that into non-mental action too. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you can do is you can break up your action scenes with dialogue. Yes. This works in some some scenes better than others, right? Because like there's the um the mountain against <laughs> against a uh, Dor- Dorn Martell. Yeah. Which, which happens in Game of Thrones book. I think. Anyway, there, there's this fight scene, but it's broken up by a lot of character-driven dialogue, mm-hmm. which I think helps a lot, especially for a fight scene that doesn't have that much going for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, as as far as just like these two people and their fighting styles, there's not much that much to the fight scene, but it's considered one of the one of the best of the Game of Thrones series because there's so much character stuff going on right so you can break things up with dialogue a lot i do that in shadows of the limelight a bunch but that's partly because the yeah it's good to have a setting that facilitates that shadows of limelight does because the drama and theatrics of of the of the world is is an appeal to both combatants yeah and there's there's always like a subtext to there's the thing that they're saying publicly and then there's the thing that they're, that they're thinking and then there's the thing that they're actually doing so there's only like only like a third of most fight scenes is devoted to the actual like fighting right in pokemon any match between trainers is after a pokemon goes down usually is when there'll be a brief break to have a kind of a quick conversation or make a comment of some kind if it's a gym battle it's a teachable moment the framework of the setting particularly in my story compared to the canon worlds it's meant to be a test and it's meant to be something that people learn from so the gym leaders and their subordinates are there to point out good things that the other person did point out mistakes that they might have made commend them on those things that they need to and say things that will teach them and the audience what to do better next time or that kind of thing yeah which is a good way to to break up the action scenes and, and give a moment of character building and that kind of thing yeah the uh battle between brock and blue there's a a public channel that they can talk on that mm-hmm. the whole audience hears, and then there's private channel that they can talk on. And then when you're in Blue's perspective, it's it's all Blue's thought process processes as well, which mm-hmm. helps break up the action a little bit. Um, you you need to be careful about the the royal you. Um, <laughs> you need to be careful about breaking your action up too much with dialogue because you want like maybe this is my personal preference, but I prefer like a spurt of action. And then a spurt of sort of a rest from the action. Yeah. To do do like sort of a staccato there. Although I I don't do that all the time because there there's some stuff. Sometimes I'm writing an action scene. I just want it to be pure action with no one's no one's talking. It's, mm-hmm. They're just like trying to kill each other. Yeah. And those will tend whatever. to be the quicker ones, right? Like those yeah. will tend to be the ones that they'll they'll be done in a few scenes because it's that fast paced and frenetic. Yeah. So that about does it for action scenes for now. We're probably going to come back to it in some form, like I say, with most episodes. Next week, we're going to have... Next week, we're going to do multiple perspectives. And it'll be a guest episode with the writer of Animorphs The Reckoning, which is an amazing story. So we're happy that the writer will be able to join us for that. Yeah. So tune in next week. Thanks for listening. And stay tuned after the outro music for another book recommendation. Audible is offering a free 30-day trial with book credit, which you can take advantage of if you'd like to support the show. 
My recommendation for this week is Altered Carbon by Richard K. Morgan. It's a hard-boiled detective story set hundreds of years in the future when human minds can be digitally stored and put into empty sleeves at will. A wealthy man, Lauren Bancroft, hires the ex-military detective Takeshi Kovacs to get to the bottom of a supposed suicide. The suicide was Bancroft's, who was restored from backup and has no knowledge of what might have made him take his own life. The novel has all the staples of hard-boiled detective fiction filtered through a transhumanist lens. Bodies are disposable, torture takes place in virtual reality, and the femme fatales have been genetically engineered for beauty. The action in particular is a highlight, which is a good thing because there's plenty of violence along the way to the novel's conclusion. To get the audiobook, go to www.audibletrial.com rational.